I'm Chef Pete Gagan from Cargill, and we're in the kitchen with Sterling Silver Premium Meats. It's a podcast where we'll be serving up insights and perspectives for chefs and food service professionals. And of course, we'll be digging into the world of premium beef. Because even with over 30 years of culinary experience, I still have an appetite for learning more. I hope you're hungry too. We're coming to you from the Cargill Innovation Center in Wichita, Kansas. And today on the podcast, I'm thrilled to broaden our scope and welcome Tom Caton of the Cargill Salt Team. He's joining us from Minneapolis today to talk about a trending topic, salt, and its dynamic role in the kitchen, including salt basics, the different types of salt, and how it affects the meat we eat in terms of flavor, moisture, and tenderness. To give you a little background, Tom received his bachelor's degree in animal science with a meat emphasis from Iowa State University. His past employers include Kahn's, Hillshire Farms, Cooper Farms, and Sarastar. He's currently the technical service specialist for Cargill Salt, a role where he provides support for meat, poultry, batter and breading customers, creating meat prototypes, assisting in trials, and conducting trainings. He's a member of the American Meat Association and the American Association of Meat Processors. He's also an adjunct instructor at the Ohio State University Animal Science Department for processed meats and branded meats classes. Welcome into the kitchen, Tom. It's my honor, Chef Pete. So, Tom, I've known you for many years now, and uh, I always enjoy our conversations. I'd love for you to tell everybody that's listening here a little bit about yourself. Sure, Pete. Any day is a good day to talk meat. So, uh, born and raised in the state of Nebraska on a 100-acre uh, ranch where we had a cow-calf operation, you know, where we would raise the calves and provide feeder calves that would go to future feedlots and so forth like that. So, that was my family's business there. Later on in high school area, I had to grow, I moved to central Nebraska, and during high school, I worked on a feedlot. So we had a thousand head, and, and then we'd finish those out, and they would go to, to a, a slaughterhouse to be harvested and so forth. And then I went to college to the University of Nebraska, and then while I was there uh, to study animal science, because of all the work I'd done in my, for my life, uh, I decided to uh, need a part-time job. So uh, at that time, the animal science buildings always had what we call a meat lab. And then for those that do not know what a meat lab is, it's actually a miniature processing facility within an agricultural building. So we have the ability to bring in all of our animals that we took to judge, and, uh, and then we actually take them into the, uh, what we call the meat lab or the university uh, processing center and we will harvest those animals on the slaughter floor and we'll evaluate them on the on what we call the rail for you know carcass qualities meat quality and we learn all those things about beef and sheep and pigs and turkeys and chicken and then from there we get to cut those up so we understand all that how to uh, disassemble an animal into the different steaks and roast and then we take all the ground trims and we learn how to make the sausages so uh, that's a long story for what these meat labs today really don't do justice they're actually miniature processing facilities that we learn but we're also training our future replacements for you and I Pete so after that, uh, I went ahead and transferred to Iowa State to the university there, and uh, that's a huge facility there where I continued. And I actually, if I wasn't in class, I was in that uh, meat lab uh, helping with short courses and training of industry people as well as research. And uh, then eventually, you know, you have to graduate. You can't go to college forever. So my first job out of college was uh, Peter Eckridge in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I was hired as a product development or an R&D person. And we made... Uh, 
all the new sausages, the new meat items, uh, and so forth. And, and uh, then from there, you know, in corporate world, sometimes companies get bought and they close facilities. Well, that happened to happen to mine, and I went I had to go find another employer, which would be uh, Cons Hillshire Cons in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is. Anybody knows the history of Cincinnati, it's called Porkopolis, where there was uh, just a beautiful, wonderful history during the the earlier 1900s, and I just love the history of this particular cons uh, and so forth. And we harvested hogs, we sold raw pork, we made beef products, we had an aged beef room, which is phenomenal if you've ever had aged beef, where you can... Uh, trim it and leave it for 45 days, and that's another subject we'll get into later. But uh, And then, once again, Cons was purchased in that facility, so I went to work for a turkey company in Ohio there called Cooper Farms, and we, we raised our turkeys, we hatched them, and then we grew those out, and then... But we were more than just traditional Thanksgiving turkeys. We processed uh, slicing turkey breast and smoked turkey and all that, so you could have turkey for the growing market of all year round. And then... After Cooper Farms, uh, some of my past co-workers in the meat business, uh, we went to the supplier side and happened to work for Central Soya. Saristar was a uh, starch company then, and Cargill eventually acquired that part of Saristar. So that led me to uh, where I am today, 18 years later, of going from Cargill's ingredient portfolio to just the salt part of that, which is on our uh, protein side of Cargill. But today is, you know, as a meathead, I'd really like to talk about and share the interaction between salt and our meat products. Yeah, and a meat-loving salt guy on top of that, right? That is correct, (laughs) uh, Chef Pete. You know, I try to tell some of my customers that uh, I'm a meathead. That's my first language. I'm learning English, and, I, you know, I would like to learn Spanish someday. (laughs) So I speak meat, sir. Well, we love the fact that you speak meat. So... I'm sure you've seen lots of changes in the industry over the years. I mean, I know I have too. But one of those is something that we want to really focus on today, and that's salt. And I guess the perception of it a little bit here has changed over the years. You know, is is it healthy? Is it not healthy? You hear, hear lots of different things. But it is something that is really important for our bodies and our health. Give us a basic definition of what salt is. And then we can start having some dialogue about salt and why we like it and what it does to food and so forth. Sure. Let's talk about uh, making salt. Uh, we, we love our salt. You know, a lot of people have demonized it because of what they hear today. But salt, I'll do the real quick chemistry. It's, you know, it's sodium and chloride. And because of that sodium, uh, a lot of people think that gets a bad rap. But sodium chloride within our body, we could not exist, any, any living animal in that case. So... We need that mm-hmm. proper sodium and chloride uh, to all of our uh, our bodies to work. We would call those part of those electrolytes that make things work in our bodies. It's part of the electrical system and everything. So I won't go any deeper in that, but uh, that's from our body standpoint. It's, you know, once again, mm-hmm. it gets a bad rap because of it's in a lot of things, uh, natural foods, added foods, processed foods, and so forth. Sure. I think it's just like any other ingredient out there or just anything, you know, some moderation. It's important. And and maybe someone has some other health things they have to think about that, you know, they have to watch their salts and all. But I think the the overall thought process is is that it's bad for me, right, for a lot of people. And it's like, no, 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 no. It's just not something you want to drink or consume by the cupful either, right? So there's that balance. But it also serves a great purpose in the foods that we have from taste and other things that we'll talk about, right? Let me ask you this. 
There are many different kinds of salt that you'll hear about. They're all based off of that sodium and chloride. But let's talk about some of those that are a little bit more common in a kitchen, whether it's a home kitchen or a professional kitchen. Sure. Um, hopefully after today, everybody will look at salt different than they have, other than being that little shaker in the center of the table. But, you know, all the salt we'll ever need in our life is here naturally in either underground mines or it's out of the sea and so forth like that. And then we bring it up and we take the water out of it and purify it and we'll let you put it on the table. Our salt falls under that case of it's not what you do, but how you use it. And in this case, not all salts are created equally. It's like, wait a minute, that's a big paradigm shift there. And it's like, salt is such an important ingredient for me. I have such a great appreciation for it. And if we could talk about salt one-on-one and, and preach the, here's what it makes a difference. So that little salt that we buy on, on and sits on the center of our table is really not the salt that really gives justice to the product, you know? In our mm-hmm. world of salt, there are many types. There's flake salts, there's coarse salts that you see where you can grind, there's these natural deposits in, in third world countries called Himalayan, which is more of a deposit, and uh, different sea salts from different parts of the world, uh, living seas, underground ancient seabeds that are dissolved. And you could sit there as some of the foodies and sit down if we could get a bunch of people and we would actually taste products with different types of salt. And it's like, wow, that's a game changer. So I think whatever, if you want to go into a little deeper, I mentioned flakes, there's granulars, there's coarse mm-hmm. pieces. And that leads us up sure. to what type of salt. And then the other key is is to talk about where you add the salt in your food system. Obviously, we can buy fully sure. processed, and we shouldn't add salt automatically to things. You should just taste your food and see where the salt. But uh, since we're going to kind of lead into meat items, we want to make sure how you want to talk about the effects of that in where we use that salt, at what time of our consumption, our meals. You get different outcomes, right, on the type you use and, and when you use it and how you use it and course, the amounts you use. So before we move on to the actual piece there of what that salt does and and how maybe we want to think about it when we're using it, let's just talk a little bit about some of the basic ones there. So you talked about table salt, right? So that's that fine ground. It's almost impossible to really season nicely with it because it's almost over seasoning sometimes the way those salt shakers are. Plus they have iodine in them. It was put in there years ago for our bodies but it really isn't needed so much. But it doesn't really have a great taste to it. That's correct. But then we have kosher salt, which is probably the most widely used, I would think, at least by chefs out there, and is a great everyday, I want to season well, I have control of how I'm seasoning type of salt. It's a little bit bigger, and, and it's something you use with your hands, and you can feel it, and you can see when you're putting it on the product. Because some of that other stuff, it's so fine, you can't even see what you're sprinkling on there, right? It's almost like, oh, there's nothing going on. Next thing you know, you've oversalted it. So let's just focus more on that kosher salt and maybe like flake salt a little bit too. I'd love to hear what the little differences are between those two. Sure. Well, that's the deal is the salt from the ground or the ocean kind of becomes chemically the same kind, but how it's processed, how we want that nice fine salt that on there, you're absolutely right. When you shake it on there, you have no control. So we, in most cases, we're always over-adding it and then it disappears. So, mm-hmm. you know, we buy with our eyes, we eat with our eyes and so forth like that. So when we get into a flake salt, it's a much thinner versus think a very fine granule on that table salt. It's overused. It does nothing for us, but, you know... In, in a lot of our salty snacks today, it's all about eye appeal. And uh, that, that carries over into f- 
a, a good beef steak and so forth. So we, when we talk about a good kosher salt, it's a fairly large and very thin flake. And when you pick it up, it's not like trying to pick up a, a sand where you can't hang on to it. These nice, beautiful kosher uh, salt flakes, you know, you can pick up a little bit. And then when you sprinkle it across, kind of some people talk about it being a finishing salt. But it's more of that delivering it right before you finish your meal. That's so that means if you're going to put it on your pasta and your vegetables and all that versus not the meat component. It just, you can see it. And then when you're about ready to consume it or share it with your friends for an evening, Oh my gosh, it's still there, and then is it just becomes an eating experience versus a functional ingredient. So that's the great thing of by getting the right salt for the right item. So salt today is not the salt our mom and dad used, in my opinion. No, well, yeah, everybody basically had the same stuff, right? It was just a table salt. That's all I had growing up. That's right, made um, one way, sir. I mean, I do like having the ability to use more than just kosher salt. So. Having some of those other salts, the flakes, and the larger chunks, they give texture. They give a different flavor profile at the end. Um, you know, sometimes you want salted caramel or brownies or cookies that someone might put flake salt on there, right? So you can see it. It didn't dissolve right away. It's all part of that cookie. But it gives you that pop of that saltiness. And it also gives you a texture, which is phenomenal. I mean, some of those salts, the those textures, that little crunch is just amazing. But... It's not like, oh, my Lord, I just had way too much salt in my mouth either, right? It has to do with the size of that crystal and the fact that it truly isn't a lot of sodium. You would never be able to do that with the smaller granule salts. Chef Pete, you're welcome to come over to the salt side anytime because you're actually speaking all those things <laughs> that it's— uh, when customers come and say, I would like to add a little salt or it's a little bland, I'm going, okay— so part of that eating experience, you're absolutely right. Some of our salty snacks that become indulgence, you know, where I want to have an experience. So I said, well, I'm going to put a little coarse sea salt on something. Well, if it's real thick, first thing you'll do is it'll dissolve in your tongue. You'll get that initial and everything after that becomes bam, that chocolate is more chocolatey. Those those barbecue mm-hmm. chips are more barbecuey. And then if you want it to linger or if you want to crunch it later on, you can have the saltiness impact and then you can have that texture that lingers. So it's all about the size, meaning the density, as well as how thin. If you want it to be a thin flake where it gives you all that initial, everything starts to salivate and you're ready for the wonderful flavor of the meat and everything that comes after that, the salt goes away because it's done its job. It's got you ready for the next explosion of that eating experience. It definitely amplifies other ingredients, right? That's a huge part of what it does. I mean, if you ever eat a steak and you didn't put any salt on it, it tastes a little bit irony. And it's a taste I don't think anybody really even knows that well because most people season their food. But people should try that. Cut a steak in half and season one with some salt and season the other side with, you know, or don't season the other side. And cook the two and really see what a little bit of salt will truly do. And I don't know if, Tom, you've experienced this with me, but when I was in culinary school, we had a teacher and... He had everybody go around the classroom. He pureed literally just onions and carrots and water, you know, and he cooked it and he pureed it. So basically like a carrot soup. And everybody got to go around and taste it in the classroom with no salt in it whatsoever. And, you know, tastes like carrots mainly, and you can pull up a little bit of that onion flavor. And then he would put a tablespoon, you know, this is probably a good gallon of soup that he made. He'd put a tablespoon of salt in. Everybody would go around and taste it. And you could start to get some changes. And then he put another tablespoon in. And then 
by the fourth or fifth time you get there and he's got it now seasoned, this is a well-rounded, almost creamy soup that only has three ingredients in it. But it was pretty much like eating a raw carrot and really one-dimensional without any of that salt. And it, it was one of the best exercises I've ever gone through to really get to taste what salt will do for cooking. So hopefully, Chef, if people were listening, they would close their eyes to try to visualize what you're trying to explain. So think of salt as someone that's going to, you're going to go to a Broadway theater thing, and the salt is the door opener. They open it up, they get you ready, and you walk inside, and bam. So you can imagine what that uh, salt mm -hmm. does as a potentiator is what I call it as a scientist. I call it a potentiator. It makes everything after that salt as the, quote, door opener have that meeting. So in your mouth, the, sometimes people talk about an explosion of flavors. And it's the one that you just can't describe. You have to eat it with your eyes closed to experience what you're talking about. Sure. Let, let's dive into salt on beef, right? So, I mean, we're talking sterling silver, premium beef here. So let's go into seasoning a roast or steak. What's actually happening there when, when that salt adheres itself to that outer part of that steak? Well... That in itself is, is Mother Nature at its best, in my opinion, is that you say, well, I just want plain meat. In order to have that, to bring out that, and we should, as good stewards of our meat supply, we should actually do our best to bring out what it was actually delivered to us. So when we add salt, whenever salt becomes in the presence of a meat item, which has a little bit of moisture in it, that salt will actually dissolve. And then the, the sodium and the chloride actually react with our meat proteins, and cause them to actually unfold and say, well, that's going to rubberize. No, no, no. If this, the right salt and the right kind and the right amount at the right time will cause those proteins to actually retain more of its natural moisture. So it's not like you're getting mm -hmm. a salty piece of meat. You're actually getting enough salt to cause that surface of your steak. In this case, you know, a thin piece of steak, maybe a one-incher or something like that, we would mind to do that an hour plus before ahead of time, not right before we serve it. That serves no purpose to what salt. That's where you sure. get that too salty taste. And then if we were going to do a roast, we'd want to, it's say four inches thick. We might want to do that overnight, you know. And what you'll find is mm -hmm. less is more. And think about that. Less salt added with the right salt actually gives you more of an impact than if you were to shake it on right before you served it. It's like, well, that's not, not, sure. I'm not impressed. So it is really, yeah. un, when you, once you understand that, sir, in your world, it's all about delivering great eating experiences. Exactly. And, and understanding, right? So like you mentioned, if it's a roast, I'll take the idea of a popular thing people do every year, you know, they'll take their turkeys there and Thanksgiving and Put them in a brine before they go ahead. Well, now the new thing and is talked about, and I think we've, we as chefs have been doing this for a long time, but is dry brining. Putting that seasoning and, of course, that salt on that roast, and, and it's drawing that moisture out. But then it dissolves that salt and other uh, flavorings that are on there, and then it draws itself back in. Yeah. And that takes time. But now you've put that flavor into that roast, into that turkey into even a steak, right? So if it's a, a one and a half inch steak and you happen to season it 10 minutes beforehand versus 10 seconds before you throw it on the grill, you're going to get that where it draws it out and pulls it back in. Now there's more flavor in every bite. It's just not a surface flavor anymore. Two different products, chef. Yeah. And, and like you said, moisture. Oh my Lord, that's the moisture that it holds onto. And it doesn't take a lot of salt. Less is more. I'll tell you that sometimes... 
seasoning with, say, like a kosher salt, people might look at it and go, that's crazy. That's a lot of salt you put on there. Well, not really. Because of the size and the shape of those crystals, it allows you to disperse it evenly across a whole piece of meat. And this way it works. In every bite, you're getting some of that sodium, right? If you were to disperse across it the same way with, say, that table salt, it would be so salty. So it, it really has so many benefits. And again, to have that beautiful tasting piece of meat, really at the end of the day, there's not a lot of sodium in it. There's not. Let's think about while you're eating that. So we take a piece of steak that has no salt on it. When you it's cooked, you cut it, you're starting to chew it. The moisture comes out of the steak, goes down your throat first, and what you're left is a piece of dry piece of meat. That's called a dry, you know, a gulping experience. So what you do is that you go ahead and take that same steak and add a little bit of very thin flake, you know, that few minutes before, uh, you and let it set as you prep. And now when you go to cook the same way, it's just when you added the salt and where you added it, that same experience, that moisture is now bound to the natural moisture, bound to that steak, and when you eat it, as you eat... That water stays with that steak. And then, of course, mm-hmm. that moisture helps all the other flavors come to you with the meat. And as you swallow, it's a great experience. You talk about what it does, too, with not just that flavor and, and moisture retention. What about the tenderness? How does that play into that? Well, we love our lean beef cuts. But the problem is, is that the lean beef comes with this protein, but it also comes with a high water content that's naturally there in lean meat systems. If the water leaves you, what happens then is we've actually cooked the water out and concentrated these proteins, and now they become very dry. And that's that tenderness we talk about, is tenderness is a dry product. Same thing. Yep. And if you if you really do a bad job, it becomes rubbery there, chef. And I mean, you can also mechanically... <laughs> Make something rubbery if you want with salt. I don't know if anybody wants to do that unless you're making some ham. And it's so, so important for people to understand when they're cooking the effects of those ingredients that you have on there. And like you mentioned earlier, it's a functional ingredient. It, not only just seasoning, so if you put some fresh parsley and some garlic and things like that on that steak, that's flavoring. That's really not going to do anything to that overall water retention and tenderness and and overall flavor, it's still going to be lacking without that salt. So that salt is that enhancer, but it's also that functional ingredient, which is going to overall give you that great eating experience. And this goes for any protein. It goes for even eating vegetables and whatever else you're going to put salt on. It's so important to pull out those natural flavors. Well, I know uh, you did a great job there of explaining that to folks is that that salt, whenever we have a seasoning, such as your, your garlics, your powders, any of those savory uh, vegetables that we might add as spice-wise, the addition of that salt will actually cause those to come across as more flavorful. So you can actually use less of mm-hmm. that. So in production, we count on that. So because spices are expensive in production, same thing applies sure. to the home table or the, or, or the home chef. You know, A little bit of salt allows you to, once again— Less seasoning, but actually more flavor because you had the salt as part of that component structure. That's so true. I had a story for you, Chef, if I could share it. Is that one of my... I would love to hear. I mean, it was uh, going to school. Is We had one of these uh, professors, you know, been around the beef business, and he knew how to do it right. But he would take a prime rib uh, bone in, and he would sit there, and he says, we're going to cook this. And he'd come out and pulled out this bag of this coarse salt, and he packed a one inch of that coarse salt all the way around that. So it was basically packed in a bed of salt. And he baked that mm-hmm. thing. 
I thought, oh, man, I'll never be able to eat that. That'll be salty. It came out of the oven. One of those cooks, slow and low, broke all that salt because it became caked. And, you, you know, you kind of a, an experience just watching him take that caked salt off that meat. And then when he, mm-hmm. he sliced that, we're eating that. That was just, um, I don't know, I guess that would call that heaven on a plate because it wasn't <laughs> salty, but the flavor was you just couldn't describe it. And I could never duplicate sure. it without doing that or attempting to do that process. That was just a great experience yeah. from a, uh, a professor that appreciated the meat that he taught and actually could cook it. That's amazing what that'll do, that encrusting of salt. I've had seafood like that, whole fish. And you would say to yourself, wow, this is going to be so salty, right? No, it's created a crust on the outside. First of all, you're not going to lose any of that moisture. But you are absorbing some of that into the meat, and it just stays juicy. And it's just a cool trick. It takes a little bit more work than maybe doing just a regular roast or throwing something on a grill. But you're right. It is an amazing uh, experience. I have a little story, too, and we talk about salt. I was in South America, and— uh, by no means am I trying to say anything bad about anybody out there, but I, I was showing some chefs down there about cooking beef steaks like we do here in the States. They use a lot of what they call rock salt. And this salt is 20 times bigger chunks than, say, our uh, kosher salts that we normally use. And down there, they don't season prior to cooking, and then they use that rock salt afterwards. And, I mean... You get a chunk of that salt that's great texture. I mean, it's a lot of texture. And you get a saltiness that's great. But but when I watch them season this meat, they put the salt on there, and 99% of it rolls right off. And it's not really doing what we just talked about to that meat. So they're not holding on to moisture. They're not unfolding those proteins and, and making it more tender. They're They're not giving that full seasoning throughout that that salt when it actually does its whole thing through that whole 8-ounce piece of meat, 10-ounce piece of meat, you're not experiencing that. When I personally was seasoning the way I do on a steak, and let's just say a strip loin, the looks on the face of these chefs was like, what are you doing? That's just too much salt. I was like, well, let's compare what you're doing to what we have going on here. I said, and... We'll still use your finishing salt, as I would look at it, too, as, a, as that little nugget we talked about earlier, that crunch, that little pop, right? So I still seasoned the steak and did one that wasn't seasoned, cooked the two up, and then I gave it to them, and I said, here, try your way and try this way. And these chefs were just like, oh, my Lord, this is crazy. I, I can't believe how much better this is. And I believe today they're probably looking at how salt would work differently. I just don't think something like what we consider a kosher salt was even available. But it, it was eye-opening to them, and I thought it was really cool. Well, I bet that whole experience, I wish I could have been there to watch and, and film those people's expressions of the before because you, it was a game-changer for you, I bet. You know, once again, I use that word mm-hmm. a lot because it's, and you didn't speak a lot. You said, let me, just hang on. Let me uh, do this, and let's go cook it and see what you think. And, uh, yeah, And a lot of people today, you know, generational cooking and getting families back together, thank you very much, is we've always done it this way. Why did you, why did Because grandma did it that way, granddad. And mm-hmm. I think today we have a lot more things than we did in that, that boring little salt shaker in the middle of the table. Uh, sure. I just, I'm going to hang on to that. Doing less is more and knowing what salt brings to all of our formulas, and especially our meat products. I mean, 
We couldn't mm-hmm. make our meat products today, you know, without Mother Nature and the cow to start with that. But in this case of being good domestic uh, users of that, that salt is really makes everything better. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, that's probably that one ingredient that every restaurant is definitely going to have in their kitchen, right? Everybody's going to have salt. So, Tom, this is actually my favorite part of doing this podcast, and that's finding out from my guests what their favorite cut of beef is, both when they go out and dine out and then also when you're cooking at home. So when you're at a restaurant, what is it that you typically will order? And then also just a small detour from this, I want to find out what is your favorite variety of salt, too? Oh, wow. Um, Man, there's great experiences. Not everybody can do this, so you have to find the right restaurant. But I love a dry-aged ribeye. Now, think about that. Close your eyes. Dry-aged ribeye, cooked to medium rare. My gosh. I need some time Mm -hmm. to think about that. So, (laughs) not everybody can do it that way. I'm not going to be able to do that at home. But when you go there and a well-marbled, dry-aged ribeye, done right. Nobody's allowed to talk while we're eating that. It's a moment that, (laughs) my gosh, I need some time now, I think. Okay. All right. So at home, (laughs) you know, it's, um, and I love my beef. And, but, you know, when people, we disassemble our animals and we have these wonderful cuts. And when they, when that animal invented the flat iron steak, that was something going right there. That flat iron steak is properly the right thickness throughout the whole piece of that muscle. And Mm -hmm. all you have to do is let it, what we call, kiss the grill and let it rest. And then you slice that at a diagonal. Once again, I have to have that product at home. That's something I can do and not screw it up. And I I don't know, I hope I've painted a couple pictures there for you, Chef Pete. But I know there's a lot more on the animal, but my gosh. So on that flat iron, are you like uh, in a cast iron skillet or are you... On a grill, are there certain seasonings outside of just salt and pepper on there? What are you doing to it? Well, that's I'm not to give away secrets because it's not going to matter. But in this case, you know, it's that flat iron comes, and uh, you're going to lightly do that salt. So we can maybe interject about that. So in my world, that we use kind of that got hooked on the diamond crystal, which just happens to be a cargill, but it's the only unique product on the shelf today that has these very thin, large flakes. And I'm talking about very thin. So you can see it, mm-hmm. and you you basically do both sides of that. So if you want just a plain flat iron, let the grill do it. So in more cases of, in our world of speed and convenience, yes, I'm using a gas grill. Shame on me. But we're going to do the two-zone cooking. So once again, you got half mm-hmm. your grill at that really high. You do that quick sear, and you move it over to the other side to so where it can equilibrate and finish off. Uh, that's the way we do it today. So, uh, you know... I have to be careful and I cook in the kitchen if I screw up and and mess up the uh, this cast iron. But right now, uh, for cooking, when I bring over family, my kids and all that, uh, it's the grill, two-zone cooking. And sometimes, you know, we could add a seasoning and it might be a little garlic powder and a, and a paprika, maybe a smoked paprika, but it's got to have that mm. large flake kosher. So it's just there. Nothing real fancy in the spice development because I'm eating the meat, not a spice jar full of things. So, sure. Uh, mm-hmm. Once again, if I've painted a good picture for you. So, the flat iron is a really special cut. It is 
what I believe is the second most tender muscle on the animal, but it does come from the, the blade roast. So you do have to remove that heavy connective tissue, and that's where you get your two flat irons from. So it's a blade roast prior to that. And one of our earlier podcasts, Chef Steven talked about that and, and using that as, as a braise. So it really is a delicious, say, pot roast in a way, right? A nice braised piece of beef before it becomes a flat iron. It's pretty special and pretty popular out there, too. And it's fairly lean. It does have some nice marbling in it, but it's still fairly lean. But for a home cook, that is a great way to have an amazing eating experience, great flavor. And as we mentioned, you grill it, right? Or, or you know, an indirect heat or maybe even in a cast iron skillet. There's a few different ways you can do it. It's a crowd pleaser. I love it. My family loves it, too. So Now, you mentioned, hey, you're using a propane grill. I get it. I do too, right? On the weekends is when I tend to pull out the um, the charcoal and the smoker and all that. But it's busy and you got to get some food on the on the table. But if you were not using a propane grill, what would be your choice of cooking that? Well, and I've been privileged to be able to travel globally and so forth. So when you go down into South America, Mexico, for sure, that carnitas, where it's all about a flat iron grill that's extremely hot. So... Um, I don't want to smoke a product like that flat iron, in my opinion. That's not a smoked product. Mm -hmm. So I want that high sear. That's the big thing is you want to sear that. So we use a term called seared flesh, and but it is really where those flavor developments come. So that flat iron allows me to have a piece of meat that's durable and tender, but allows me to go sure. ahead and sear it without developing a skin. And, and the flavor components... You know, it's just amazing. I just can't describe it. In fact, I'm very hungry right now. But it's it's that would be the <laughs> preference. It'd be that very high heat of a sear on both sides. And then you basically uh, shut it off and let it just finish. Sure. Many different ways to cook, but sometimes really, really high heat on an item like that is just perfect. It loves that, right? So fast, really, really high. And then, like you said, you just move it aside and, and just let it finish doing its thing. All that extreme energy early on. Probably not the best cut for, say, like a sous vide preparation. Being so tender to begin with, I don't believe it does well when it's cooked like that in its own juices. It can be rather polarizing and really irony at times. So I think it really needs that char, whether, again, mm -hmm. it's from a grill, from some charcoal, some really high plancha, right, uh, flat top there. Uh, that really helps that steak have a, a great flavor and great eating experience. Back to your first choice of a dry-aged ribeye. I don't know if everybody's had the luxury, if you want to call it that, of of having a dry-aged ribeye. You know, they're not, they're not cheap. So we put them in a dry-ager, and over time they lose moisture. So, right, what was 15 pounds is now 9 pounds. So becomes pretty expensive. If you had to say the one thing about that piece of meat that just makes you so happy and just puts you in a different world, what is it? Well, you know, I had the privilege when I worked in Cincinnati, my company, we actually had a dry aging room that we provided for the white tablecloths. And uh, mm -hmm. when you talk about these bone-in sections that are put in a cooler on a shelf and you let them sit there at different days, you know, 35 days, 45 days, and even longer, pushing 60. But when you eat something like that, 
I call that, from a scientist standpoint, it's that controlled enzymatic breakdown. And what happens there, you have those unique flavor compounds that we actually in class would have to uh, draw out. What are you developing here? And then to be able to taste Mm -hmm. that. So my my palate has been calibrated to the chemical reaction. (laughs) Sorry to talk like that, but it's just... No, it's, it's all right. It's a whole mouthfeel. It has nothing to do with marbling. It's just the the flavor components. You cannot get those out of a jar. And Mother Nature sure. is that. So there's a difference between wet aging and, you know, he can give you some other notes. You know that. But in the case of true dry aging, it's in a controlled environment where we have to have good airflow. And we don't want to dry out the piece of meat. We want to basically have it in a humidity that allows this thing. So uh, a lot of our, you know, I have custom beef and all that kind of stuff. So you can actually, if we could leave it on a hang in a cooler on a rail for for 30 days, we would. But you got to tie up that cooler. So we take those uh, what we call primal cuts. Uh, and it's, it's phenomenal. So I, I hope that helps understand. I can't tell you in one word yeah. what it is, but it's a... You know, it's not me being happy. My mouth is the what gets happy when you have a product that you cannot, no one, you know. So sure. it's time, Mother Nature and time. Like you said, it doesn't come out of a jar. No, sir, it, it does not. Well, hey, Tom, um, this, was, this has been great and learned a lot, and uh, I appreciate you being on here today. So, you know, the popularity of salt, the different varieties, the different ways it's been used is really something exciting to see. So I'm happy that you could be here today to share your knowledge and insights with us. Thank you, Chef Pete. It's uh, any day's a good day to talk meat, but I want to make sure all the listeners, they will look at the use of salt on their product different after today's talk, and it's a game changer. So the next time you have a chance to eat our wonderful uh, sterling silver beef, remember it's uh, what we've talked about today is that it's the right salt and the right amount, and enjoy that product. And again, thank you so much for chatting with us. And thank you so much for being such a meathead. (laughs) It's my honor, Chef Pete. And to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us on In the Kitchen with Sterling Silver. Be sure to join us next time as we continue to slice into the amazing world of beef. Until next time, happy eating. To get the next episode delivered to your inbox, subscribe on our website, sterlingsilvermeats.com. Just sign up for our e-newsletter at the top of the page. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast platforms. And be sure to follow at Sterling Silver Premium Meats on Instagram. Until next time, we'll see you in the kitchen with Sterling Silver Premium Meats. 